We'll read this morning from Psalm chapter 26. Psalm 26. Hear the word of the Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my heart and my, my mind and my heart. For your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash my hands in innocence, so I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands is a sinister scheme and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be merciful to me. My foot stands in an even place. In the congregations, I will bless the Lord. Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. To sound abroad the worthy praises of the God of all grace should be the everyday business of a pardoned sinner. These words were spoken by Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, and they dovetail very nicely with the words of our text this morning. And we're going to focus our attention uh, on verse 7, but I want to make sure that we don't uh, rip it out of its context. The context is always important when we're looking at Scripture, both the immediate context and the larger context of all of Scripture, which has for its scope or its aim the glory of God in Christ Jesus. So with any text, we must situate it in both its immediate context and within the larger corpus of Scripture as a whole. So that's what I want to do with Psalm 26 as we begin. Now for immediate context... We have the psalm itself. The prescript uh, tells us that this is a psalm of David, but that's all it tells us. It doesn't tie this psalm specifically to any particular episode in David's life. And we can make some general guesses as to certain episodes that this psalm might coincide with, but we don't know for certain. We can see the structure of the psalm, the way it is composed, that it, it begins with a declaration of innocence, a cry for vindication in verses 1 and 2. The psalmist then declares that his heart has been fixed on God, not on evil company in verses 3 through 5. In verses 6 and 7, he then affirms his intention to worship God and proclaim his glory. And this is really the peak of the structure of the psalm. And then in typical biblical fashion, the psalm reverses itself. In verses 8 through 10, we see a parallel to verses 3 through 5. He once again declares his love for God and his separation from evildoers. And then verses 11 and 12 parallel verses 1 and 2, closing the psalm as it began with a statement of the psalmist's integrity, his innocence, and a cry for redemption or vindication. So we have a basic structure that we see quite often in the Psalms, a sort of linguistic pyramid with verses 6 and 7 sitting at the peak. 
Now, we'll look closer at some of those details as we go along, but for now, I want to point the structure out to you because it helps us understand the immediate context of the psalm. First, it helps us recognize what this psalm is. It is not a narrative telling us a story from the life of a biblical figure. It is not didactic teaching like we see in much of Paul's letters. It's a song. It's written in poetic fashion. It's meant to be sung, and the way it's written with this structure makes it easy to memorize because we have those parallels. This is why you will often hear me quoting uh, the Psalms using the translation of the Psalter from 1650 done by the Westminster Assembly, because it, it helps us to hear the Psalms as poetry or as music, which we often miss in our English translations. And that, that helps us understand the context of the Psalm. It's a song that was meant to be sung. Now, we could look at the life of David and try and find some particular instances where David uh, might have said things like we find in this psalm, some instances where he was mistreated, slandered, falsely accused. We could think of Absalom's betrayal in 2 Samuel 15 or Shimei's cursing in 2 Samuel 16, or more likely is the murder of Ifbosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 4. All of those are possible circumstances in which David would have declared his innocence in the matter. He had nothing to do with the, the murder of Ishbosheth. And so we could see this psalm might have flown you know, out of those instances in his life, but the text doesn't tie it to one of those. Instead, it's written and published as a song to be sung by all God's people by the entire congregation. We all experience circumstances where we feel ourselves to be innocent, to be mistreated. Now, we're rarely as innocent as we think we are, right? We're we're sinners, and and we often, it's always a two-way street when sinners are involved, but we do have these instances in our life where we feel like we're being slandered or falsely accused. And so this song can be of use to all of us in similar situations. Jesus told us to expect these sorts of situations. He said in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Peter also in his first letter tells us to expect to be spoken of falsely in the world. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when, not if, but when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So we should expect to be put into situations like this at some point. And this psalm is for us in that moment. But we also need to consider the scope or the aim of Scripture, which is Christ. He is the focus. He's the central figure of the entire book. All of Scripture is meant to direct our hearts and our minds to Him. And so we need to put this psalm in that context as well. The psalm declares an innocence that we rarely, if ever, can live up to. Who among us wants God to judge us on the basis 
of our own guilt or innocence, on the basis of our integrity. I hope you don't. If you do, I've got bad news for you. You won't like the judgment that follows. There's a sense in which no one can honestly speak the words of this psalm except Christ himself. He is the only one who can declare that he has walked before God in innocence and integrity. As I've said before, the psalms are songs of Christ. Consider Psalm 24, which asks, Who is the man that shall ascend into the hill of God? Or who within his holy place shall have a firm abode? Whose hands are clean, whose heart is pure, and unto vanity hath not lifted up his soul? nor sworn deceitfully. Who among us has a pure heart, hands unstained by sin, has never worshipped the idols of our own heart, has never told a lie? Anyone want to raise their hand? I hope not. None of us is qualified then, according to Psalm 24, to ascend the hill of the Lord and to enter into his presence. But Christ is, and he has, And he is there as our covenant head and mediator. And because we are united to him by faith in him as our covenant head, we are qualified in him to enter into God's presence. And so Hebrews 4 tells us, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our coming before the throne of God in prayer, we can only do that because we are in Christ. So the Psalms are His And since we are in him, they become ours as well. So when Psalm 26 speaks of integrity and innocence, we shouldn't think of our own, but of Christ's. It's only on the basis of our union with him that we can lay claim to the words of this psalm. That context is vital to our right use of this psalm. Without it, this psalm really has nothing for us because none of us has walked with integrity and innocence before God. So we must remember the context. It is a song written for Jesus that becomes our own due to the doctrine of our union with Christ by faith. And so we can see from the structure of this psalm that despite our circumstances, as our hearts remain fixed on the goodness and the mercy of God, our mouths cannot remain silent, but will speak of the glory and the goodness of God with a voice of thanksgiving. So let's focus our attention on verse 7. Verse 7 says, That I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. And we see here what the believer's task is. As Charles Spurgeon put it in that quote I shared at the beginning, to sound abroad the worthy praises of the God of all grace should be the everyday business of a pardoned sinner. By trade, Christians are to be proclaimers. Our spiritual profession, our business is to proclaim, to announce, to tell. God gave us his word. He gave us a book. He didn't give us a painting 
that we were to show to people so that they could look at it with their eyes and be saved. Though they are supposed to look at us and see our lives together, our love for one another, and know that we are his disciples. But apart from the word proclaimed, them seeing that doesn't tell them how to be saved. God didn't give us a recipe and say, make this dish, serve it to people, and when they taste it, they'll be saved. No, he gave us his word to be proclaimed. He didn't give us incense to burn so that people could smell it and be saved when they experienced the smell. Now, metaphorically speaking, 2 Corinthians does say that believers are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved the aroma of life leading to life. But to the non-elect, 2 Corinthians says we are the aroma of death leading to death. And those who are being saved in that passage, just before it said that we are the fragrance of Christ to them, it said that that door was opened to them by the preaching of the gospel. So yes, we are the fragrance of Christ, myrrh, aloe, and cassia, but to those who have heard the word of the gospel. The spoken word is the good news, which is what the word gospel means, is to be proclaimed. The gospel is news that must be published. The good news of Jesus Christ is first and foremost a message that must be communicated using words. Our mouths cannot be silent. Our task is to proclaim And it is the gospel that is the believer's topic. Proclamation is our task. The gospel is our topic. That I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. The psalmist says that he will tell of God's wondrous works. And this is a phrase that's used 10 times in the Old Testament. Once in 1 Chronicles 16, which is actually a song that is later incorporated into the Psalter in Psalm 105. It's used twice in Job in reference to God's works of creation and providence. And it is used seven times in the Psalms. In each case, it is a reference to God's deeds among the people, his salvation, his deliverance of his own and judgment upon the wicked. There are seven other times where the Psalms speak of God's wonderful works using essentially the same language. And again, these are all references to his work of salvation. As the Psalter puts it in Psalm 107, Oh, that men to the Lord would give praise for his goodness then, and for his works of wonder done unto the sons of men. The only place we see this language in the New Testament is in Acts 2. When the Holy Spirit comes on the church at Pentecost, all the believers, all the disciples there begin to speak in various languages. The crowd that is gathered is amazed at what they're hearing. And they say, we hear them speaking in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Can there be any doubt that what was being spoken by the disciples in that hour was any different than what is being referred to here in the Psalms by the wondrous works of God? It's the wonderful history of salvation the works of God to previous generations from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to our very own testimony of salvation. That is the topic of the believer's proclamation, the wonderful works of God in the salvation of sinners. 
It's the gospel that is to be proclaimed. It's the story of salvation, which includes the story of Adam and Eve, the promise of a seed who would defeat the serpent. It's the story of Abraham and a covenant of promise, a promise of a seed who would be a blessing to the nations. It's the story of the children of Israel and a Passover lamb and a great deliverance. It's the story of a land flowing with milk and honey. It's the story of a king who will sit on the throne forever and rule with justice and mercy. It's the story of Christ. It's the story of his incarnation, which we'll be looking at next month. It's the story of his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his glorious resurrection. It's the story of the salvation that has come to wretched sinners such as you and I. It's a story worth telling. It's a story that is to be proclaimed. It's a story that has been proclaimed in palaces and prisons, from the rooftops and in the gutters, to rich and poor alike, to Jew and Gentile, to slave and free. It's a story so compelling that when our hearts are moved by it, by the goodness and the mercy of God, our mouths will not be silent, but we will speak of his glory, his wondrous works to the children of men. But it is a story that is to be told in a certain tone of voice. The believer's task is proclamation. The believer's topic is the gospel of salvation in Christ. But the believer's tone is to be one of joyful thanksgiving, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. Think how different this verse would be if it didn't mention thanksgiving. In the midst of trials and hardship, false accusations, Worship is given to God in the sanctuary and proclaimed with the voice. But with no mention of thanksgiving, we're left with the worshiper's voice in what tone? A tone of weariness? A tone of despair? A tone of anger? A tone of discontent? But that's not how the psalm instructs us. We're told that proclamation should happen with a voice of thanksgiving. What kind of worship would it be if it was done with another voice? Now, we know that in the end, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, but the tongues of the wicked will confess to God, not with a voice of thanksgiving, but with reluctant angry and grudging submission to the king of kings. That is not the sort of worship that the redeemed offer to their savior. Ours is to be a voice of thanksgiving as we worship God and proclaim the glories of his great salvation. But our voice will only speak with a tone of thanksgiving if our heart has first been captivated by the beauty of Christ, the glory of God, and the wonder of salvation. Our hearts must be moved by the goodness and the mercy of God before our mouths can speak with a tone and a voice of thanksgiving. The believer's task is proclamation. The believer's topic is God's wondrous works and salvation. The believer's tone is to be one of thanksgiving. But you may say, I don't always feel thankful. What what am I supposed to do How am I supposed to speak of God's wondrous works with a voice of thanksgiving when my soul is weary 
downtrodden, when I'm sad, grieved, exhausted, angry, anxious? How am I supposed to worship with a voice of thanksgiving in those moments? Well, our text answers that question for us. First, the text would have us consider the company that we keep, the counsel that we seek. Notice that the psalmist insists that he has not taken the counsel of the wicked in verses 4 and 5. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. He has not sat with idolaters in verse 4. That is, those who worship falsehood or worship emptiness, such as idols are. He will not sit with the wicked in verse 5. To sit with them is to keep their company, to, to rest among them, to sit in the gates and keep counsel with them. We see this pictured for us in the fourth chapter of the book of Ruth as Boaz goes and sits in the gates of the city and takes counsel with the elders of the city to negotiate the redemption of Ruth and Naomi. That's the idea here in, verse 20, in chapter 26 of Psalms. To sit with the wicked is to hear what they have to say, to seek their counsel. In verses 9 and 10, the psalmist pleads with God not to lump him together with the wicked in judgment. Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands is a sinister scheme and whose right hand is full of bribes. Having kept himself from their counsel and their company, why should he suffer the fate of the unrighteous in judgment? Well, so it is with us. If we have would if we would have voices of thanksgiving as we worship, it must begin in our hearts. We must set our affections not on the wicked, their company, their counsel, their way of life, but we must seek to walk before God with integrity, with singleness of heart and mind. Now, that's not to say perfection. David wasn't perfect. Neither are we. But David was a man after God's own heart. Notice it says in verse 1, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. First he says he has walked in integrity, but then he says he has put his trust in the Lord, not in himself. The idea is that his heart has been fixed on God rather than on the counsel of the wicked. And there's a bit of a subtle warning in this psalm for us. He says in verse 5, I have hated the assembly or the congregation of evildoers. Now, it's interesting that he speaks of a congregation of evildoers, an assembly or gathering of the wicked. This should be a warning to us. The assembly of evildoers was not out there somewhere. It was within the larger congregation of Israel. This was true for David. There were certainly evildoers within the nation of Israel at that time who desired to influence the king with their wicked counsel. This was true of Christ. In his time, there was an assembly of evildoers within the nation of Israel led by the false teachers of the Pharisees. And this remains true for us as well. There's a stark contrast here between the assembly of evildoers in verse 5 and the assembly in verse 12. It is in the congregations that I will bless the Lord. Congregations is plural there to put the emphasis on it. Other translations translated as the great assembly. 
The first is earthly and found in the midst of the nation, but the other is heavenly and pure. The assembly of evildoers was within the larger assembly of Israel. We must be cautious of the company we keep and the counsel that we heed. Even within Christianity today, there is an assembly of evildoers, false teachers, false professors, those described in verse 4 as hypocrites. With their mouth they profess faith in Christ, but their hearts are far from Him. Their counsel is not to be trusted. They do not walk in integrity of heart. They love this world, the praise of men, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and their counsel is evil. We must be careful of the company we keep, the counsel that we seek. Let it be only those who love the Lord Jesus in truth and not in word only. If we listen to the counsel of those who love the world, it will turn our hearts away from the Lord, and we will not worship with a voice of thanksgiving. But if we listen to the counsel of those who love Christ and His gospel, their conversation will turn our hearts toward Him in love and with gratitude for his great salvation, and our hearts moved by his goodness and his mercy, our mouths will not be silent, but we will take joy in speaking with a voice of thanksgiving concerning the wondrous works of God. Second, when our soul is far from thanksgiving, let us follow the example of the psalmist and flee to the altar. Notice that verse 7 begins with, "...that I may proclaim." To make the meaning clearer, we should understand him to be saying, so that I may proclaim. He's referring back to verse 6. I will wash my hands in innocence. I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim. What does he mean to wash his hands in innocence? Well, this is a reference to the layout of the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Covenant. Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 through 20. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze, with its base also of bronze, for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it, when they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord. They shall wash with water, lest they die. The psalmist is alluding to this practice by saying that he will wash his hands and then he will go about the altar. That is, he will offer sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving to God. He's suggesting the need for cleansing from the filth of this world, from the stain of sin before heartfelt worship can take place. When you are discouraged, burdened, oppressed, flee to the altar Confess your need of God's mercy and loving kindness, your need of his forgiveness and cleansing. Plead the righteousness of Christ, your mediator, who suffered and died for the forgiveness of sins and rose again that all those who trust in him might walk in newness of life. Turn to the promise of God in scriptures. That is where our washing is found. We're told in Ephesians 5, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. 
Turn to the scriptures. Seek the truth of God, whereby we are sanctified, John 17, 17. Our minds are renewed, Romans 12, 2, and our hearts are cleansed, Hebrews 4, 12. Prepare your heart for worship by washing it in the word of Christ and flee to the altar. Now, we don't have an altar in the church. There isn't one here. They had one in the temple, but we don't have one here. So what do I mean by saying we should follow the psalmist's example and flee to the altar? Well, Hebrews tells us that the old covenant temple was but a shadow of things to come. Hebrews 9.9 says it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. The temple and the sacrifices that were made in it could not cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. But he says it was symbolic. That means it was pointing at something other than itself. Right? A sign is not the reality. An exit sign on the highway is not the exit. It's pointing to the exit. So what was the temple pointing toward? It was pointing toward Christ. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more? Shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It is the sacrifice of Christ that is able to cleanse our conscience. So what altar do we flee to? We flee to Christ. In chapter 10, Hebrews goes on to say, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness by the blood of Christ, as we can enter the holy of holies, that greater heavenly most holy place by the blood of Christ, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We enter the holiest place by the blood of Jesus. Our hearts and our consciences cleansed by his sacrifice. This is not a physical location as it was in the old covenant, but rather a spiritual reality. We enter the presence of Almighty God in prayer and in worship when we draw near to him through Christ being washed in his blood and clothed with his righteousness. It's our hearts and minds as we approach the altar. Christ has offered himself once for all as a final sacrifice for sins. We look to the word to sanctify and to cleanse us because it tells us of Christ. And it is his blood shed that washes our hearts and our consciences, makes us fit to enter the presence of God in reality. So we are looking to Christ, fleeing to Christ through means of the scripture 
to inform and shape our worship. And so we should consider our salvation, the wondrous work of God. If you are struggling to worship with a thankful voice and a thankful heart, think on your salvation. Think on your own unworthiness. There is nothing good in us that Christ should die for us. We are completely unworthy of such a blessed sacrifice. We are wretched sinners, rebels, committing cosmic treason against the holy God. What a wondrous testimony to God's grace and mercy and goodness that Christ would die for us. Think on your own unworthiness for salvation and let your heart be moved to thanksgiving. Consider the cost of your salvation. The sinless Son of God laid aside His eternal glory, took on on Himself human flesh, suffered the trials of this life, the scorn of men, mocking, pain of scourging, and finally death, none of which He deserved. He was without sin, perfect in all His ways. He suffered the weight of God's righteous wrath on behalf of all those who put their trust in him. The cost of redemption was high. The life of the very Son of God. Consider that and let your heart be moved to thanksgiving at the cost he paid to redeem unworthy sinners such as you and I. And meditate on the glorious results of Christ's work of redemption. Your sins forgiven removed as far as the east is from the west, your conscience cleansed, your spirit born anew and remade into the likeness of Christ our Lord. Meditate on your adoption as a child of God, the promise of an everlasting inheritance with the saints. Meditate on the promise of everlasting life, a new creation free of sin, sickness, and death. Meditate on the heavenly Jerusalem, the vast and innumerable company of angels, the spirits of believers made perfect, the great assembly of the church in heaven, worshiping around the throne now and forever, and one day our voices will be joined with theirs. Even now our voices are joined with theirs as we worship. Meditate on what Christ has accomplished in the salvation of his people And let your heart be moved by the goodness and the mercy of God, by his wondrous works which he has done in the salvation of the children of men. And then your mouth won't be silent. You will speak of the glory of salvation with a voice of thanksgiving. And finally, when your soul is afflicted and burdened and thanksgiving is not near to your heart or your lips, seek God in the congregation of the redeemed. In verse 8, the psalmist says, Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. It's not the building that he loves. It's the presence of God among his people. The temple was the dwelling place of God in the midst of the nation of Israel. It's the place where God's glory dwelt with his people. That is now the church. Christ is the true temple, John 2, 21. The fullness of God dwells in him, Colossians 2, 9. And the church is his body, 
Ephesians 1.23, and therefore it is the new temple in which the Spirit of God dwells. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? 1 Corinthians 6.9. Every you in that verse is plural. This is true of the individual Christian, that the Spirit of God dwells in us individually, but how much more so of the church gathered All those yous are plural. The church is the temple of the Spirit of God. It is the place where His Spirit is manifest, dwelling together with His people. And just as the psalmist and as Christ Himself in His earthly life declared His love for the place where God's presence dwells, so we should love the church, the body of Christ, the temple of the living God. But the church is full of sinful people. It is. And we know each other's sins. We're in close proximity to one another. We we see the warts. We see the sin. We know our own sin. The church is full of wretched sinners. All the more reason for thanksgiving. It's not just you that God has saved, but a whole people of God. All of us, wretches and scoundrels, together, redeemed by the blood of Christ. There's a wonderful narrative in the second half of Pilgrim's Progress where Christian's wife and children have begun their pilgrimage of salvation and they come to the interpreter's house. And the interpreter is showing them various things and he takes them into the best room in the house and he asks them what they see. The only thing there is to see is a spider on the wall. But Christiana is silent. And he, he asks the question, is that the only spider in the room? And Christiana says, no. We're all spiders in the room. He's referencing Proverbs 30, which talks about the spider dwelling in king's palaces. We are the spiders. We are wretched and ugly to look at and full of the venom of sin. And yet, because of the sacrifice of Christ, we dwell in the king's palace together with one another. To be with others who have trusted in Christ for their redemption should stir up our hearts to praise and thanksgiving. Notice that it was near the altar and in the congregation that the psalmist says he proclaims God's wondrous works. Learn to speak of the glories of Christ with other believers. This should be the practice of the church. And this will prepare us to speak the good news of Christ to those who do not yet believe. Sometimes I think that our fear and our reluctance to share the gospel with the lost stems from the fact that we don't practice speaking the gospel to one another. If we spoke the gospel to one another and reveled and enjoyed in the gospel together, that would help us and prepare us to speak the good news of Christ to a lost and dying world. It is in the church especially that our hearts should be moved by the goodness and mercy of God so that our mouths are not silent, but will speak of his glory with a voice of thanksgiving. Let's pray.